Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to anyone who will be listening via Temple Beth Am's podcast. Um, before we start, I need to read everybody a remarkable email exchange that I had because it's related to this class. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, I got this email on Sunday. Uh, the person who I'm referring to might be listening, which case I hope you're smiling. Uh, Rabbi Klickfeld, my name is Will Reynolds and I'm 17 years old. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I just wanted to reach out and let you know how grateful I am for Temple Beth Amun and specifically for your Rashi class. As I'm currently going through a faith crisis, your class has instilled a love of learning Torah and has helped me to be more intentional in my systematic examination of the Hebrew scriptures. Will, it's great to be in email contact with you. So there is a teenager in Chattanooga who is exploring Judaism and came upon our class and has been listening. And uh, it's just uh, nice to know that the conversations we have around these ancient and medieval texts are having an impact on people we never could have imagined. And Will, I hope to be in contact with you again soon. I think you might be watching. I don't know if you're watching on Facebook or listening on the podcast, but um, I'm grateful that you reached out to me. Okay. Um, we are on chapter seven of the book of Shmot. We read a long time ago, verse 11, we stopped before the Rashi. So as is our wont, I will start with the verse again, and then we'll jump into the Rashi. Um, because it's been a while, just to remind you of the scene, this is really the first uh, interactive encounter between Moshe and Aaron and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians. Uh, they've been there once before, and then things got worse for the Israelites, but this is the first time they're kind of being sent in uh, to, to inaugurate what's going to become the, the 10 plague uh, narrative. Okay, so chapter 7, verse uh, 11. Um, might as well go back to verse 10 just to get some momentum. I'll do this quickly. Uh, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they did so just as God had commanded. We're not going to go over why that's not why that could be or not redundant. Aaron extended or cast his staff, Lifne Pharaoh, in front of Pharaoh, Lifne Avadav, in front of his servants, Vayahi Letanin. It became a serpent. Our verse. And Pharaoh called his sages and his sorcerers, right? We discussed that the root of Mechashef is Kaf Shin Pei, which has to do with sorcery or magic, Kishufim, the shortest, I think it's the shortest verse. Well, no, it's except for the Two word, thou shalt not, the Ten Commandments. One of the shortest verses of the Torah is in Parshat Mishpatim, that you shall you are not permitted to allow a witch or a sorcerer to live. It sounds money Pythonish, but it's actually in Parshat Mishpatim. And 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 also the another word for sorcerers of Egypt, and we discussed are the Khartume Mitzrayim, a third category, you had Chachamim, Mechashvim. And Khartoumitraim, or is Khartoumitraim a um a catch-all for the Chachamim and the Mechashafim? We're not sure. But the the sorcerers or wizards of, of Egypt uh also did Bilahatehem Kane, did the same thing with their staffs. And the way we ended it was interest. We 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 discussed how interesting it is that the Torah, whose primary 
raison d'etre is to raise up God's power above all any other potential pseudo divine powers has in this scene and not only in the scene, yes, ultimately Moshe and Aaron's power using God's power is going to dominate, but we do see ourselves as witness inside the, the voice of the text to the Egyptian magicians doing magic, right? And it does go to the question of what is the difference between, you know, magic that's sleight of hand and magic, which may not exist in the world, but which some people might believe exists, which is actually things that are happening supernaturally, right? But before we get into that distinction, we are at face value exposed to Pharaoh's courtiers doing some pretty exceptional things, pretty nice David Blaine um, uh, type of magic, okay? That's where we were. We did not get to the Rashi. Rashi is going to focus on the word lahatehem because it's an interesting Hebrew word. Let's pause and see if anybody, if, if that little um, up, uh, run through awakened any co comments or questions on the verse. Welcome, Mathis, who's joining. I'll go. Okay, go ahead, Rick. Um, did we even talk about the trick of turning us, uh, making a snake or an alligator rigid, or there's there's ways that alligator handlers and snake handlers can make the thing uh, rigid. Did, did we even talk about that? Or that's, I don't remember that's talking about that, but that's the. I mean, it's that's one the trick, to, right? One thing to turn a snake rigid is another thing to turn a rigid stick into a snake. Well, they thought it was a. They thought it was a stick. I see. Okay, so like you were saying, it was a sleight of hand thing, but everybody could do it. The thing that that the topped it off was Aaron's ate all the other ones somehow. So um, right, we're not there yet, but yes, yeah. yes. Um, okay, so you're suggesting that that one of the ways we may want to understand how Egyptian magicians were able to do things that only God should be able to do is that th theirs was a magic trick and and a Kaddish Baruch Hu was a miracle. Listen, that's the that's the comfortable way of thinking about it, right? The comfortable way of thinking about it for those of us who do want to lean into God's supernatural powers in the scene, even if we wonder whether or not God has direct supernatural powers like that in our lives, want to believe that what God was doing through Moses and Aaron actually should not have been able to be done were it not for God, whereas the magicians were able to, uh, you know, have the, have them look over there while they switch something over here. I'm pulling a, a, a rabbit out of the hat. I see Barry's hand and I see Joanna's hand. Uh, you're muted, uh, Barry. I know it's been a long time. <laughs> Back to these. All right. Um, I always thought that uh, it, they did the same thing, that they, they made uh, snakes out of sticks. Uh, but actually the Hebrew is gamchen. Uh, and it's it's not exactly the same, so we don't know exactly what they did, but they they did some magic stuff. Well, the simplest way of reading the Hebrew is they that they, they did do the same. Gamheim, they also who the Chartumim they also did the same. Did did Cain means yes, but it means like the same thing with their with their staff. So the Hebrew actually invites us to read it, not that they were doing something different, but that they're doing the exact same thing, in which case, what's the miraculous about the, from our perspective, is what's going to happen in the next verse, right? Um, but if what's only miraculous is what's going to happen in the next verse, then it does leave us with a question of why, how were they able to do it? That's one question. But the meta question is, why does the Torah tell us they were able to do it, right? The Hebrew invites us to imagine that the Egyptian magicians were actually doing what 
Pharaoh, uh, what Moses and Aaron were doing uh, in, in the words themselves. Uh, a lot of hands, Joanna, Tova, Diane, Larry. I'm curious about these three groups of people that are with Paro. And I'm curious also about the word gamheim in particular, about what they're modifying. Is the gamheim just back to um, Aharon and that they could copy Aharon? Or is the gamheim, the chachamim, the mechashvim, and gamheim, even them, chartumei mitrayim, could do it? Because I think there's like two possible understandings that the chartumei mitrayim were the most powerful among these Egyptian categories, or like a degrading uh, um, of what they did. Like, not only could the Chachamim and Mechashvim do this, but even the lower, the less skilled, the less talented Khartoumi Mitzrayim could do it. So I just think it's interesting to explore why are these three groups of people on the scene and what is each group able or not able to do? That's a fascinating question. In order to explore that a bit, I'm going to pause before we get to Tova and Larry and Diane and do a little bit of translation comparison with all of you, because I wonder if I hadn't thought about that until I hadn't thought about why the translations are translated as they are until you said that. I wonder if the translations are trying to get us somewhere towards that. So hold on one second. Okay, so this is the translation that, that this it's not new at all, but it's new to me. I, we found it on Safari about two months ago. I'd never heard of it before. The Torah Yeshara by, what's his name again? Um, Charles Kahana, 1963. Um, and uh, I just, I just, I, I like it. And I like being exposed to a different way of translating the Torah. Then Pharaoh also called, so the first gum is an also, also referring to, in addition to what happened in the previous verse, for the wise men, the Chachamim, and the sorcerers, Mechashvim, and they, Kaman, the magicians of Egypt, also could do the same by their secret arts. Now, even in the English, we could ask a similar question to what Joanne is asking. Is the, Eng is the second also in this verse saying that the magicians of Egypt, which is a catchphrase for the wise men and the sorcerers, could also, in addition to Moses and Aaron, or... Is it something closer to what you're saying, Joanna, which is that the wise men and the sorcerers came, and not only they, but even the magicians of Egypt could also do the same thing, suggesting that it was not as challenging an act. It's something like that. And I'm not, I'm not sure what she had in mind. I want to uh, share with you uh, Everett Fox. Hold on. Um, Pharaoh too called for the wise men and for the sorcerers. So Chacham seems to be translated as wise and Chachamim sorcerers. And they too, comma, the magicians of Egypt should do this with their occult arts. The should is very interesting. I have no idea what Ever Fox is doing with the should. He knows much more about this than I do. I just, I'm, I'm really confused by a Ever Fox translation. Sometimes I'm tickled by it, but I'm really confused. I don't know how he got the should, except that sometimes a, a future um, tense verb in biblical Hebrew has the has the form or an impact of a should. But I think in terms of resolving the question about what the second gam is about, I think that um, the way it's pointed here, the comma suggests that Everett Fox thinks that, quote, Khartoumi Trium, the magicians of Egypt, is the collective description of the wise men and the sorcerers. And I think it's slightly different than the way Kahani um, translated it. Uh, while we're doing translation, uh, Larry, do you want to read um, 
any of the ones, the Alter or Kaplan? Absolutely, and that's why I raised my hand. Okay, Toby, I promise you we'll get back to you. So I'll just read the translations, which I think are, are both similar. Uh, Alter says, sorry, and Pharaoh, comma, too, comma, called for the sages and sorcerers, and they, comma, too, the soothsayers of Egypt, did thus with their spells. That's Alter? That's Alter. So clearly, Alter thinks that soothsayers, Khartoumi Mitzrayim, is an all-encompassing categorization of sages and sorcerers. Seems to agree with Everett Fox, okay? And I think maybe um, that Ezra, um, not Ezra, um, Arya Kaplan thinks the same. The Pharaoh summoned his scholars and magicians, period. The master symbolists were able to do the same thing with their magic tricks. Hmm. So even though he reorganizes it a little bit, I think, too, that Arya Kaplan thinks that master symbolists include scholars and magicians. So I think they're in the Everett Fox camp. Hmm. So um, Joanna's suggestion is, is, an interest, is an interesting one, which may have a bit of representation in Charles Kahana's. Um, but it's also interesting because it's using translation as a way of trying to understand how little we should think of this miracle uh, that the Egyptian magicians are doing in this verse and that the real big news is what's happening in the next verse. Uh, okay, Tova. Um, it's trying to get my head back on track after that interesting discussion. Um, it was just striking me looking at this description that we're kind of seeing this as this must be tricks and sleight of hand. But from the Torah perspective, I think it could have been understood as this is actually a power that human beings could in fact call upon and perform. Aaron and Moshe have been given the ability to do this, a sort of entry level thing to do by God, which is I find real interesting, like this is to let them get into the conversation. But yeah, it's like they're acknowledging, yeah, these guys can do it too. This is, there's a level at which human beings can manipulate, not in our modern sensibilities by sleight of hand or trickery, but by some genuine manipulation of the world at, at some fundamental level. And that made me think about the progression that we're starting. This is like the entry level, the first conversation. And as you say, if they're going to top, you know, this, but it's, they, they're starting, it's like they're introducing themselves at a level that Pharaoh and his court will recognize, and then they're going to top it slightly. But we're going to see this escalation from what human beings can manipulate in some way, at least by the thinking of that time, to things that begin tapping into nature in a way that human beings can't, and ultimately tapping into life itself and, and manipulation of creation in a way that human beings can't. And so it, I'm really seeing this as um, more genuine than we tend to interpret it in a, in, from a modern point of view, and as a very deliberate beginning of an escalation of revelation. Uh, that was a lovely Dvar Torah, Tova. Thank you for that. That adds a lot, um, particularly that last phrase, the escalation of or to revelation. I'm also thinking about the psychology of domination. 
So to move from this from the sublime to the to the more sublime from tower to baseball, right? <laughs> it hurts much more to lose a game 11-10 in the ninth inning when it's been back and forth than if they score eight runs in the first inning, you're never in it. Right. Because if you're if you're if you're dominated from the beginning, you've then you realize that you're up against at least that day, you know, a team that you can't compete with. But if if you think that you're 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 constantly even and at the very end you lose is demoralizing. So I wonder if what you were suggesting, whether you intended to or not, was this notion of the Torah setting up rather than God coming in with Makat Bechorot day one. Right. There's something yet more demoralizing to Pharaoh's sense of his own power and the Egyptians by, by, by bringing them along, like thinking that they, they, they can, they can contend with Muhammad Ali in this, in this ring, but actually they're going to, they're going to, they're going to be knocked out. And once, once they are knocked out, they're going to realize how small they were, but they're going to have thought along the way that they weren't that small. I wonder if that's going on too. Thanks Toba. That was lovely. Uh, Renee and then Joanna. So Saperstein says Pharaoh too summoned his wise men and sorcerers and they too, the necromancers of Egypt did so with their charms. I wonder if uh, another way to interpret their charms is not the physical things that they had, but their own personal attributes that they brought to it. Well, it's interesting. The word, so the word charm in, in, in English obviously has a double entendre because it's a spell and it's also charisma. Um, Saperstein, as is his wont, is translating the verse Alpi Rashi. We're going to get to Rashi in a second. And Rashi is going to translate the word Lahath, just to give it away a little bit, not, not as a thing, but as a method. Because we, what we did not do, as, we, as we've lingered on the verse, is, is really break down what does the word Lahatehem mean, because we haven't had that in this scene, right? We've had these staffs. And so by, by parallelism, we're like, well, if Aaron and and you know and uh, threw down his staff and did this, then when the Torah says that the Egyptian magicians threw also did so with, with their lahats, then a lahat must be a synonym for a staff, and it might be, and it might not be. And as we get to that rush, you will understand why Saperstein might have tra- uh, translated it as charms. Uh, Joanna, and then maybe we'll get to the Rashi. Joanna, um, why, don't you, why don't you give your comment and then you can go right into reading the Rashi? Sure. So really, my thought really picks up right where we are right now, because I was noticing, um, you know, why the use of these two different words. And it's just sort of interesting to note that two of the three letters of the Shorashim are the same in both words. So what, why a different choice of words? And what is that subtle difference getting at? Oh, Lahat and Mate, you mean? Right. Right. They're, that's interesting. They're they're clearly not the same root, but they're, they share two of the three letters in the root in different orders. Interesting, which, which could mean something or nothing. Um, okay, so I'm trying to think which orders to do this in, because if we read Uncleus, it'll give it away. But let, let's read Uncleus, because um, Uncleus is before Rashi. Does, is there, raise your, your hand digitally or real if you do not have Uncleus in front of you, in which case I'll put it up on the screen. But I think everyone should have Uncleus. Anyone don't have Uncleus? Okay, now I'll read it. Ukra af paro lachakimaya. Pharaoh called his chacham, so there the same word. Ulacharashaya and his, um, know, these are all synonyms, but masecharash is a, is a phrase from um, the building of the Mishkan. It's someone who has a particular expertise in doing something. Va'avadu af inun, and they also, 
Harashe Mitzrayim. We actually looked at this part last time that Uncleus uses the same Aramaic word, both for the Hebrew Mechashfim and the Hebrew Chartumim, because in both in both cases, uh, Uncleus turns it into Harash. Belachashehon Kain. They did it with their Lachashes. What's a Lachash? Anyone know what the verb Lil Chosh means? To whisper. I'm going to whisper you a, a sweet melody um, in, in, in Erev Shoshanim. So Uncle says, may, maybe because he thinks what the word means, or maybe he's doing a little bit of our Torah, that what all Aaron had to do was to throw a thing down and it turned into, into the snake. Whereas they're doing whispering, they're, they're, they're doing incantations, they're, they're, they're creating some sounds with their mouths and somehow that's how they're able to do it. So he turns it into the word whisper. It's, it's, it's absolutely the case that if we don't know what lahat means in Hebrew, it's absolutely clear that in Aramaic, lachash means whisper, it's unambiguous, right? So he's converting it from an ambiguous Hebrew word to an unambiguous Aramaic word. And Rashi either agrees or is influenced by Uncleus or both. So um, go to read uh, 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 Rashi, uh, Joanna. Belahatehem, belahashehon, ve'en lo dimyon bamikra, ve'yesh lidamotlo, lahatacherev hamita pechet. Okay, pause there. Okay, so... Um, according to Rashi, means with their whispering. Right, and I'm actually just picking up that even though he doesn't say kitargumo in his words, it's clear that Rashi is not just agreeing with with Unglis, but quoting Unglis because he's quoting the Aramaic form, right? I, I, I didn't pick up on that beforehand. Sometimes Rashi will say kitargumo and will send us to Unglis. Here, he's actually quoting Unglis. Had he not been quoting Unglis and just been telling us that he thinks Belahatehem means whisper, he would have written it in Hebrew, Belachashehem. But since it's written Belachashehon, it's an Aramaic word, which means he's quoting Uncleus. Okay. Um, and there's nothing similar to this in all of Tanakh. It's a very interesting comment, right? So he's saying, I'm confident that Uncleus was right, but it's not, it's it's almost a hapax legamina, but not quite. There's no other place in Torah he believes where the word lahat means a whispered thing, but there's something close-ish, maybe. Go ahead. Okay, and that close, close-ish, maybe thing um, is in Breshit Gimel, where we have the phrase lahatacherev hamita pechet, and I'm trying to remember. Bre- oh, excellent! Right, like I'm assuming it's the swords outside the Garden of Eden, just from like trying to think of early Tanakh sword. Bingo. Uh, Bingo. So let, let's look at that. Okay. So this is um, the, the, the original expulsion um, uh, from, from, uh, from Egypt, uh, sorry, from the, from the Garden of Eden, right? So if you, uh, if you look at verse 23, God cast them out or sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the land from which they were taken. God expelled the man. And God in place, this is the kind of the, the he feel of Shochein to, to make someone dwell to the east of the garden, right? Uh, this is, you know, Steinbeck, east of Eden. Et um, hakruvim, the cherubs. Vi'et lahat hacherev hamit 
And what else did God emplace just to the east side of Eden? A a lahat of a cherev that was mid right? We we it's almost no, no more helpful to to translate it to English because um, all the, the, it's an unclear image. Cherev is a sword. Mit hapechet is from the root hafach, which means something that keeps being um, rotating, right? That what Ben Bagbag says in the Mishnah, they're supposed to turn over Torah uh, be, over and over again because everything is in it, right? Some kind of a lahat, let's untranslate lahat, but the lahat of a sword, which is revolving. And what's its purpose? Lishmor ederech to guard the pathway to the tree of life. Don't look at the translation uh, on the page, although that means you're about to look at the translation on the page. Um, in context, what do we think that the the lahat of the sword, which is revolving, is? What could it be? What could what could what aspect of a sword is is or, or a blade? And what kind of a blade? A revolving blade, because the mitapechet is modifying cheriv. Um, I believe. Uh, could could it be? What could what could the lahat be? The gleam. The gleam. Okay. So so most people understand lahat having to do with a a fire or a flaming thing, and that there were these you know Indiana Jones style revolving blades, and what kept people away? Not the sharpness of the metal, but the blazing light that came every single time. You, you know you know every once in a while you. You look at something that by accident you realize is positioned exactly right and it's reflecting the sun's rays to you, like the, the piece of metal in your kitchen or something off of a window, and you pull back from it. Something like that. And if you look at, this is now Kahani's translation. Um, uh, he placed the, he placed the, he, he goes a little crazy. He placed the destroying angels at the east of the Garden of Eden and the flaming sword which turned in every direction, right? So, what he's picking up on in Lahat is flame. Now, if Lahat means flame here, then it doesn't help Rashi in our verse, right? Because Rashi saying that Lahat in our verse is a um, is is a whisper, is an incantation. But that doesn't mean that the only way of understanding Lahat in the verse in Genesis is flame. So let me show you some other translations of that verse. One second, I couldn't put it. Um, what's the verse? Three twenty four, right? Okay, so um, this is Fox's translation. God drove the human out and caused to dwell east of the Garden Eden, the winged sphinxes, that's how Fox handles Kruvim, and the flashing, comma, ever-turning sword. So he agrees that Lahat is a flash, he just changes the, the syntax of the verse as if... Um, like cherev is modified by two words, modified by lahat and modified by mirhapechet, um, but as a, a thing which flashes, not the only translation. Let's look at JPS. Oops, where'd you go? The cherubim and the fiery every turning sword. So um, once again, we've got fire, corin, the bright blade of a revolving sword. That's how Larry suggested it. Okay. Matsuda, the flame of the rotating sword, old JPS, the flaming sword, Humash Rashi with Silverstein, the flash of the revolving sword. Okay. So nearly all of them 
read the verse to which Rashi has thrown us from our verse as Laha being flame, which means that nearly all of them undermine Rashi's sense that that this use of lahat, he never said it was the exact same, but it's even kind of the same. So we have yet to resolve how is it that what Rashi throws us to Genesis, it helps us understand how he reads lahat in our verse. It might help to read Rashi on that verse in, in Breshit. So let's pull that up, and then I'll get to Barry. Okay, so this is Rashi on the verse in Genesis. And, you know, I... We talk about this all the time. I to, to to really think of Rashi as an actual human being, which he was, and his process. Do I know that he wrote the his entire commentary in order? Did he ever go back and adjust what he said about Breshid once he got to Shmot? Right. I, I don't know the internal conversation in Rashi's head between Rashi's commentary in our verse in Shmot and Rashi's commentary in this verse. Maybe they were in conversation with each other. Those those commentaries. But this is what Rashi says in that verse. It, to it, it, it had a lahat, it had some kind of a flashing flame to threaten, to frighten. Lest anyone else come in. Lagan. Targum lahat shnan. So Rashi is saying that the Uncleus's translation of lahat. Um, uh, is a, a word uh, called shnan, kemo shalaf shnana, uh, like a phrase that uh, from the Sanhedrin, which says that he drew his blade, uvashon laaz, and in Old French, the word is um, lame. Is that a French word meaning a blade? Umidrashe agadayesh, there are many midrashim on this, I'm not going there. I'm just translating it flatly. Which means, just to just to summarize, Rashi on Breshit is saying that Lahat means flame and only flame and not going to Midrashic explanations. But Rashi in Shmod is saying Lahat Tehem means whispers, and there's something kind of like it back at Breshit, but we don't know what he thinks in our in this verse in Breshit is similar to the word of Lahat in our verse. Okay, that's where we are. Let's go to Barry and Diane Larry, and let's see if we can resolve in what way Rashi pushing us to brace sheet helps us understand our verse in Shmoot. Go ahead, Barry. So um, conceiving of a, a flashing flame as a way of directing energy from a source to an object. Interesting. So the, the, um, the like, the, 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 the gleam glinting off a sword reflect, reflecting the sun's light is kind of like the magician's or representing God's actual power. Is that you're saying it? The so-called whispering basically is means by, by mouth, words, whatever, incantation, directing the energy towards an object. Interesting. Great. That's a fascinating potential. Let's uh, hear Diane Larry, then Renee, and then I'll actually have Joanna finish the Rashi where we get a little bit more information from Rashi as to how he's connecting these two. So you you could theoretically think of a of a sword that's spinning around as making a noise of some kind, um, or else a flame is making a mm -hmm. noise of some mm -hmm. kind, sort of mm -hmm. an indistinct noise. Kind of like the noise in the background here. You have um, a hot hamid hapechet back there, Diane. <laughs> As they scrape off our patio, um, 
And and so it it could be some kind of noise. Ah, so so what's similar to Rashi is the is the audible nature of it, right? Something right. that produces a sound, okay? Okay. So Saperstein says that in the old and modern French both, that lay means a thin strip, band, or plate. And often, especially in old French, la mea is used specifically for the blade of a knife or of a leaf. The cognate English word lamina has the general mm. meaning a scale or layer of metal or tissue. Like a laminate. And the specific meaning of a blade of grass or of a leaf. Aha, uh -huh. great. Uh, bye, Joanna. Thanks for joining us. Um, okay, so then uh, Joanna can't read the last. She doesn't even get to finish the last line of the Rashi, which is what brings us to a little bit to a conclusion. Uh, Joel, haven't heard from you yet. Will you just read the last five words of the Rashi, or six, depending on how you count the hyphen? Um, oh, I'm an uncleish. Um, um, bala. Uh, so it's similar in that it's it's rotating by way of some sort of whisper. Right. It's just Rashi being very convenient, right? He's saying, I don't really have another word, laha, that means lahash. But if you look in that scene from Rashid, where God set up the rotating blade that was called lahad, how is it rotating? God was whispering to it and telling it to rotate, right? It's as if Rashi is saying, yeah, it, it was a lahat in that God was behind the cherubim going, rotate, rotate, whisper, whisper, right? So he he, he recognizes that there it's not an exact cognate, but he wants to draw some kind of a, a storyline connection between the two uses, okay? Um, let's pull back a second. What do we gain, going back to the previous question, the conversation we had about the relationship between the Egyptian magicians and, and, and Aaron. What do we gain, if anything, by suggesting that the means by which they converted something into a snake uh, was with a whisper as opposed to just a staff? In the storyline, why is that helpful? Or is it helpful? Or is it just, is it, is it just plain? Does it, does it help us understand something differently? Barry, oh, we don't we don't hear you, Barry. Barry, we don't hear you. Sorry. Right. Moshe and Aaron is telling all he did is throw a stick out, and it became. Um, they didn't do anything. Um, whereas uh, the, the, the magicians, whoever they are, they, they had to do something. They, they they had to do this this whispery magic stuff. They had to make they had to make something happen. Yeah. So it, it may be that by rendering lahatehem not as an object but as a a whispered spell, it de um it demiraculizes a little bit what 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 the egyptians are doing because it's not as instant as they, they, they didn't have to invoke anything Egypt, you know fair moses and aaron just threw it down and it happened whereas they had to um kind of you know convene and whisper the exact right incantations maybe something like that or it may be just that's what rashi thinks the word means right and maybe that he's not telling us that because he's trying to turn it into a sermon he just thinks that's what the word means joel I mean, I don't denigrate the power of words. I mean, even God had to say something in order to create the universe. So, right. Baruch Shamar Olam. Yeah. No, not denigrating, but I don't know. Maybe we're making this up as we go along. Is it more or less um, impressive to do something like that with or without having said anything? 
I don't know. Right. Uh, Rick, and then we'll go on to the next verse. Um, coming up, I won't say too much, but coming up, it's all about spells and what you say and incantations. And um, the Torah is basically saying that their incantations don't do anything. They don't mean anything. And the Egyptians were very into spells. And, and um, I think Tova can back me up on that. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, let's, before we read the next verse, I want to show you Ibn Ezra on this verse. So let me share that screen. Okay. Uh, Ibn Ezra, Spanish commentator, grammarian, um, also worth reading on every verse, but we don't, and we, we, we end up reading him just a little bit. Um, let me open it. Why is it not in here? Oh, it's in both. Okay. So he, his comment, the Dibur HaMachil on his comment is the Khartoumim, the third of the three words in the verse that refers to uh, Egyptian sorcerers or wise men. Haim Hayodim Sod HaToldot. The ones who know the secret, it's translated here as nature, Toldot really means birthings, but the secrets of the origins of the world, something like that. So uh, Ibn Ezra is giving sort of credit to the fact that Egyptian had their own wise people who know, or at least think they knew about the, or the meta metaphysics. The Hamila Rivi'it, the word is a Rivi'it. Look how the translation of Ibn Ezra translates it into a quadrilateral. This is not a math. This is not A squared and B squared. Does anyone know what we think? Literal, Ibn literal, Rabbi. Quadriliteral. Quadriliteral, right. Sorry. But even so, it's not that. Anyone want to guess what Rosh, what Ibn Ezra means by calling this word a rivi'it or a quadriliteral? The four-letter root? Correct. Four-letter root, right? Most every Hebrew letter root is three letters. If it's four, it's it's doubled, right? Like um, the fas face is a doubling of pesamach. Um, and most and many three-letter roots can be reduced to two. But it's very rare to have a Hebrew word where there are actually four letters in the root. And if there are four letters in the root, or it seems to be, what does this suggest about that word, its origins, outside the tradition, right? So this is, so he says, chet, resh, tet, mem, are all part of the shoresh, the root of the word chartumim, as if there were a Hebrew word lechartem, right? But there isn't a Hebrew word lechartem. Ulai lishon mitzrayim, maybe it's an Egyptian word. O lishon kazdim, Right or a Chaldean word. I'll, I've never understood why Ur Kazdim in the Torah became Ur of the of the Ur of the Chaldees, but in English we refer to that culture as the Chaldaic or the Chaldean culture, and in Hebrew it's Kazdim. Kilo mikra. Do not find this root anywhere else in the in the Tanakh. Rak bedivrei shinehem, except uh, when dealing with this particular. Um, Category of people helping Pharaoh. But this is the part that I really wanted to get to. If you look carefully, Ibn Ezra says, you reader who are wondering, hey, why are we even being exposed to the fact that Pharaoh's um, magicians were able to accomplish anything? Look carefully, and you'll see that the Torah made a distinction between Masem Moshe, the acts of Moses, although it was really actually Aaron, Shahaya Emet, Shenefach Hamate Latanin, who actually 
converted the staff into the serpent. Uvein hartumim, and the actions of the Egyptians, al kain kativ belatehem. Therefore, uh, the word is changed belatehem. Interesting that in this version of of um, of uh, Ibn Ezra, he takes out the hey in the word latehem. I don't know if that means he had a a different version of the Torah. That's possible. Or B, we have a messed up version of Ibn Ezra. But in this version of Ibn Ezra, the word that we have in our verse of Belahatehem is Belatehem. Vahamila, Shlishit, that is a traditional three-letter root. Migizrat Lahat Hacherev, from the same Shoresh, the medieval Hebrew word for Shoresh is Gizra. We've seen that in the past. In Gizra, you think of the word as decree, but it really means it's, it's how they use the word root. Lahat acherev, from the verse that we looked at before. And he gives us another one. Ashkava lohatim. What's Ashkava lohatim? Psalms 57, verse 5. Psalms has some really interesting and complex Hebrew. Nafshi betoch levaim eshkava lohatim. Really hard. My soul will lie down amongst... Um, Levaim, it's translating here as um, man-eating lions. Anyone ever visited or stayed in Kibbutz Lavi? Kibbutz Lavi in the north, beautiful kibbutz, a, a, an orthodox kibbutz with a wonderful guest house. Lavi is a biblical word for a ferocious lion. Eshkava lo hatim. So, so this translation of Psalms translates lo hatim as modifying levaim. My soul, nafshi, eshkava, I will lie, betoch amidst, Levaim lohatim, lions that, again, translating as man-eating here, but something to do with, um, with, uh, with, 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 you know, gnashing, gnashing teeth. If we look at different translations of that verse, this is JPS. Uh, is there another, how does Koran translate the verse? My soul is among lions. Ah, this is better for our purposes in Ibn Ezra. So, nafshi betoch levaim, um, my soul's among lions, and now eshkava lohatim as its own phrase. I lie down among lohatim, those who are aflame. So for Ibn Ezra's purposes, when he says that this is like the word lohatim in Psalms, uh, it has to do with um, something that is flaming uh, and uh, and 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 alive, or flaming and and, and flashing. Okay, so hold that as we, um, oh, so then what's the, in, in, what is Ibn Ezra saying when Ibn Ezra says that scripture indicates a difference between what Moses did and what the magicians did? And the proof of that is that their word, their word is lahatehem as opposed to uh, just turning it into a snake. Anyone get what he's saying here, Rick? I just saw at the bottom, I like the word illusion. The illusion of lightning and passing fire in the English there on the bottom. No, no, scroll back up there. Right, I was going back to the Hebrew, right? Sorry, I just noticed the word illusion. I just like that. Right. So I, I forgot to actually read the last piece of Ibn Ezra. He tells us why he thinks the word latahem is significant in downgrading the miracle. This is a basically 
you know, um, slight sleight of hand or a trick of the eye. By using flashing flames, it distracts you and you don't actually see what's going on or you think something's happening which is not happening. So Ibn Ezra says, if you look carefully at the verse, the fact that the word latehem is used is the Torah's way of saying whatever they were doing, it's not the same as what Moses and Aaron were doing. They were, you know, they were lighting, you know, um, you know, you know, smoke bombs or, uh, you know, flashing strobe lights to distract you. And then all of a sudden the strobe lights are gone. All of a sudden, oh my God, there's a snake in front of you. Well, you don't know what happened while you were distracted. Something like that. All Moses Aaron did, it says, you see the staff? Now it's a serpent. So built into the language, according to Ibn Ezra, is an indication of the, of what was less miraculous and more magic-y about what the Egyptians did. Okay? Uh, Joel? I, I just always assumed that Khartoumim was connected in some way to Khartoum, the city. But after last week, after this, we talked about it last time, I looked it up and it, it's unknown what this, what the, what the uh, source of Khartoum is, but it's none of the suggestions are of anything to do with magic or anything like that. Hmm. I never made that connection, but now that you suggested it, I will never not think of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else on verse uh, 11? Okay. Let's get to the verse that Rick had anticipated. So Rick, why don't you read it? Um, because this is where what, what whatever competition of, 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 of magic is happening in verse 10 or 11, in verse 12 is the machria, is the one that determines who's really on top here. Okay. Um, so, um, they cast out, they uh, sent out, um, uh, every man his staff, Mate again, and, um, it, they became by you as plural Latinim, um like serpents. Lit lit is as or like something like um, that. Yeah, right, right. Latinim, uh serpents. However you want to just uh, uh, translate that by Yivla, and um, it swallowed is singular. Matea Haron Aaron's uh, uh, staff at Matotam. Their um, staffs. Staves, Good. the old English is staves here in uh, the Silverman, which Good. I kind of I kind of like. What's unclear here is how to deal with the punctuation. The, the the words Rick rendered perfectly, right? So each person cast out their staff. They all became serpents, and then the staff of Aaron, Mate Aharon, that word in Smichut is the subject of the verb Vayivla, swallowed Bolea is to swallow, uh, swallowed their staffs. What's unclear is, is the vayashlichu ishmatehu vayulataninim, that each person extended their staffs and they became serpents. Is that an extension of the previous verse? Right? Is that really um, that the Hartumemi Trium did also with their staffs and they extended their staffs and they became and they became serpents and there should be a sof pasuk after taninim? Or is this a, like another mini scene that verse 11 ends and the Egyptian... Uh, Khartoumim did what they had done, perhaps with flashing lights. And then we have another action. The action is that each person extended their staff and they became serpents. Who, who is the each person? It's hard to know. But most significantly, the denouement is that 
that that Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. Right. Um, anyone have any thoughts on where whether to append the first half of verse twelve to the directly to the last half of verse eleven, or to have it stand alone as another oh. thing that took place? Rick and then Barry. Um, well, the Silverman says, "For they cast down every man." So Silverman connects the two. Uh, it, it's part of the same scene. Uh huh. So when when they did their thing with the lahatehem, they were they they cast down. I'm just saying it says four there for the vayishlach. Uh, it's not an and. It's a because they for they did it. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. Uh, it might be interesting again for us to look at some other translations of verse twelve and see if they put in a period in between. Yeah, how they begin it. Yeah. Everett Fox just continues it as a sentence from the 11. It's not even yeah. a separate sentence. Yeah, let, let's show that and we'll get to Barry. So um, this is Everett Fox. Um, there's a comma uh, that, that the, he, he adds in a that they too in verse 11. Pharaoh too called for the wise men and for the sorcerers that they, uh, that's the should. Now I understand Everett Fox. I, I missed that they too, that they too, the magicians of Egypt should, meaning that they would in the future do this with their occult arts, and they threw down each one his staff and thus, and these became serpents. Okay, now I understand David Fox. So he's connecting the beginning of verse 12 to the end of verse 11. Let's see what our new friend, um, what's his name? Uh, Kahani says. Yeah, a for, for each cast down his staff. So it's a continuation. Um, Larry, do Alter or, or Kaplan read it any differently, suggesting that verse 12 is a, as another action rather than a no, no, both of them, uh, both of them have a period separating, um, and, and start up with a, with a new verse. And there's nothing the only, the only interesting thing, if it's interesting at all, is they don't translate each, they simply say each one in the case of Kaplan, in the case of Alter. Um, he says, hold on, I got back a page. Yeah, in each. So nothing interesting there. Matsuda is a little bit interesting. That's the one on the screen right now. Full period in the verse 11. When each man threw down his rod, the when is not there in the Hebrew, but I understand what they're trying to do. They, the rods, became serpents, and Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. So Mitsuda is translating it as every single time they kept trying to do so, and every single time that the Egyptians using their lahatim turned a staff into a, a serpent, Aaron's rods swallowed them. So um, it's it's slightly different. Let's see. Um, Dapperstein has a period and it says each one cast down his staff and they became serpents, and the staff of Aaron swallowed the, their staffs. Yeah. Look at Corin. For they cast down every man his rod, and they turned to snakes, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. It's endless possibilities. They're, they're, they're very subtle shades of each other, but they're different enough that they're interesting. Barry and then Larry Diane, and then we'll look at Rashi. Well, I'm, I'm also going to withdraw what I thought I was going to say, but what I thought, thought I was going to say, it seems like two scenes. One, uh, Aaron and Moshe, they did their thing. To yeah. the magicians, that did their thing. Now, now they're holding their their sticks again, and now comes the next approach where uh, they all threw them down and they got gobbled up. Yeah, 
but uh, the punctuation in these translations make it appear that it's one scene. Uh, as soon as the magicians threw theirs out and they made mistakes, they got swallowed. I, I think it's two actions. Yeah. And listen, we are tr- we are conditioned to believe the period at the Sof Pasuk. But in all languages, a sentence does not mean the end of a scene, even though we, we study each verse as its own its own its own universe. Um, and you know, we, we've we've talked a lot about the Vav Ha'ipuch as a form in Hebrew, the you know, the, the Vav that ch- turns a future ver- looking verb into a past and vice versa. There's a lot written about what the vavaipuch is doing syntactically, and 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 what it's doing is is it's it's making the next action organically and intimately connected to the previous action. That even though before it there was a period, the Torah wants you to read it as one continuous um, extending scene, right? So. Because verse 12 begins with Avavayipuch, we're actually invited to read verse 11 and 12 altogether, even though many verses begin with Avavayipuch, including the next verse. Uh, Diane, Larry, and then we'll look at Rashi. Yeah, I have a question for you, maybe for Rick, uh, that, that, that goes along those lines. I believe that the chapter divisions, I have a Christian origin, which we then adopted, and but the, I'm I'm not sure about the verses themselves, and so when the Masoretes were punctuating with trop and all the sof pasuks, um, what was the basis of the separation they were looking at? Was this Christian? Is this something that is part of our tradition? How how do we know where the verses begin and end? Yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> My brain wants me to say that I once knew a better answer to that than I know now. Like I remember knowing that more, and I don't, I can't produce the the information. Um, it's knowable, meaning it's relatively knowable. Certainly, it was it was it was um, um, codified by the Masoretes in the ninth ninth and tenth century. They had they were already at the level of verses. I, I don't know if Rabbi Akiva knew about Psukim. Um, or about, or if, if Rabbi Akiva inherited the, 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 the Sof Pasuks that we have inherited. Um, the Talmud seems to refer to verses by saying that um, there's a, there's a halacha that is derived, forgot when the Talmud that says that um, any, any verse that Moses did not split, we're not allowed to split. Where might you see this? Some people are very makpid in davening. Makpid means conscientious about never quoting half a verse. Um, this comes out in Kiddush. Um, that's half a verse. So some people will never do Kiddush and Shabbat morning unless they do the Zachor Yom Shabbat, the whole verse beforehand, because of the halacha that says, if Moses didn't cut the verse, you shouldn't cut the verse. That's a Talmudic notion. Um, there's someone who, uh, sometimes people in Pesuket Zimra, there's one ending in Pesuket Zimra that the traditional place to uh, end is a half a verse. It's not, I think it's not Torah, I think it's Tanakh, but some people are very conscientious about beginning the thing that the Shaliyah Tzibor says out loud earlier so that you're not starting in the middle of verse. So the Talmud has a has a sense of verses, but do I do we, are we do we know for sure that the division is exactly as we have it now? I'm not aware of it. Uh Rick, you might be the last comment of the morning. Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to 
point out again that Onkelos uses chutra um, in chutre hon, which we like to remind us of uh, Passover with yes. the uh, with that, and he he um, he uses that. Um, and then I also wanted to say uh, um, the Ten Commandments, uh, Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. It's a great scene where the snakes, his snake is eating the other snakes. And I think we should go on YouTube and, and look at it before the next class. It's, it was just a great image um, that's obviously actually, still in my head. I actually think we should gather in Wellfleet uh, and watch the entire movie together uh, <laughs> as, as a class field trip. I'm sure we'd be excited if we all showed up, right, Elon? <laughs> Anytime. We would love to have you. Uh, let's end here with another Rashi cliffhanger, not having read the uh, the Rashis. Here, here's the question I want you to think about for next week. Is there, I'm going to leave the witness a bit, is there any significance to the fact that as we visualize the, verse 11 and even halfway through verse 12, what are present are serpents and not staffs, but what is consuming something at the end of verse 12 is a staff, not a serpent, right? So they, they turn to tanins, and so there should be snakes on the ground, but that Aaron's staff consumed their staffs. But the last thing we knew about Aaron's staff is that it was a serpent, not a staff. Just think about that, because that's what Rashi is going to be sensitive to. Uh, next week, finally, thanks for your patience, back in class, back in Pilch Hall, uh, be well, everyone. Kol tuv, shalom, and I'll see you soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.